This is the Handel passage, right? I feel like you should start by singing. No. For <laughs> <laughs> unto us a child is born. For us a son is given. The sun is giving, <laughs> and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Oh, yeah, it's my start. Sorry. Okay. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other lovers of the Hebrew scriptures. On this Christmas Eve, I'm Rachel Wren. And on this Christmas Eve, I'm still Tim McMinch. <laughs> we have uh, for you on this uh, December 24th a uh, special edition of First Reading, a Christmas Eve episode, which this year happens to be Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. Our dear friend Rachel Wren has prepared something for us, which once again is available on workingpreacher.org. So a little cross-pollinization here with First Reading and Working Preacher. But since we've got you here on uh, on the interwebs, we'll let Rachel share with us what she's got regarding this text. Great. Well, this is one of uh, my favorite Christmas texts, which is uh, probably echoed by uh, most people who enjoy Christmas Eve. It was um, immortalized by the great George, uh, now I'm going to say it wrong, is it Georg or George Friedrich Handel? We'll just go with Handel. By the great Handel. Handel. Mm-hmm. Yep, I know that one. And since they were immortalized in song, they're, for most people, linked forever to the holiday of Christmas. But the theme of great light and wonderful counselor carries resonances that reverberate throughout Israelite history, and in ways that can deepen the impact of these words for all hearers on December 24th. Again, like last week in Advent 4, this is a great way to start a Christmas Eve sermon if you're feeling a little low on uh, Christmas Eve energy. Mm. Because great light is actually a theme that is continued from the chapters before. In Isaiah 7, as we talked about for last Sunday, God offers to all of Israel a prophetic sign of peace in the face of imminent political disaster. And this sign is the birth and name of an actual child, Emmanuel, Hebrew for God is with us. This child is meant to be a physical sign of God's intimate presence and a theological assurance that no disaster will befall Jerusalem. But the frightened and faithless king ultimately rejects it and with it God's saving help. And then we learn in Isaiah 8 that instead of looking to God, the people are rousing dead spirits to ask them for help. So God is essentially knocked on the door and said, hey, would you like some help? And the people said, no thanks, we're going to go over here instead. Um, This is one of those great texts to to give to people when they say, you know, I think if God just actually showed up in my life, then I would have faith. This is an example of God actually showing up and people still don't have faith. I think it's a good uh, analogy, actually. The people and the king literally reject God's offer of life in favor of death. And God has had it. The one who does this, God states in Isaiah 8.22, will look up to heaven or down to earth, but will only see distress and darkness, gloom and anguish. Into thick darkness they will be thrust. Chapter 8 seems determined to shove any hope of redemption into the dimmest corner of possibility, which, to be quite honest, is what the people themselves have already done. 
But then, two verses later, floodlights. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of thick darkness, on them light has shined. The nation which caused divine revulsion in chapter 8 is showered with joy, like big joy, really big joy in chapter 9, verse 2. Joy as at a successful harvest. Joy as at heaps of plunder. Joy, we hear in verse 3, as as freedom from the oppressors of Midian. Now, Midian is a reference which means almost nothing to us, but it would have meant something special to the Israelites. Midian was the national and religious equivalent of something like Independence Day and the Emancipation Proclamation rolled into one. So Judges 6 narrates the oppression of the Israelites by surrounding nation-states, described poetically in Isaiah 9 as a yoke on their back, a bar on their shoulders, a rod of the oppressor. And Judges 7 describes the battle that changes all of that. In Judges 7, a warrior named Gideon, uh, think of a kind of Israelite amalgamation of Frederick Douglass and George Washington. Gideon rallies 32,000 of Israel's troops to fight the nation-states which have been oppressing Israel, Midian most of all. Now God promises Gideon that they will win the day, but he also informs him that it must be made abundantly clear that the victory is God's and God's alone. So three different times, God makes Gideon winnow down the troops. And ultimately, all that remains of the original 32,000 are, do you know the number, Tim? I don't remember. 300 fighters. That doesn't sound like enough. Not quite. <laughs> but that night, Gideon gives each soldier a horn, a jar, and a covered torch. They surround the enemy camp and then simultaneously blow their horns, break their jars, and uncover their torches so that it seems that the Israelites are bringing a seriously coordinated attack. And the Midianites, in short, just lose it. They panic, and in their disarray, they end up fighting and killing each other, handing the victory to Israel and ultimately to God. So the day of Midian was a day of salvation in a most decisive fashion. In Isaiah 9, the people stumbling about in deep darkness are now delivered as on one of Israel's greatest victories. But note carefully in verse 6. It is no Frederick Douglass orator or George Washington commander who brings this triumph about. Instead, it is a child born to a people with authority and not oppression resting on his shoulders. More, it is a child who has been named not great warrior, but wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. The day of Midian is flipped on its head. The authority of this child shall grow not in conquest, but in peace, established and upheld with justice and with righteousness from this time on and forevermore. This child, which in the time of Isaiah was most likely Hezekiah, the son of King Ahaz, will enter into a theologically failed and chaotic kingdom and turn it on its head. Remember, his father, Ahaz, refused to rely on God's help, but reached out to oppressive political empires instead. And Hezekiah does lead in marvelously faithful ways, trusting in God's salvation, even as Jerusalem is surrounded and besieged by an Assyrian king, King Sennacherib. 
surrounded and besieged, but not taken. And it is the word of God from Isaiah which steals the king's nerves long enough to see God's deliverance of Jerusalem. But while the prophetic oracle of Isaiah 9 may begin with King Hezekiah, it does not end there. Peace prevailed during Hezekiah's time, but disaster loomed, and later it struck with a vengeance. Over the centuries, empires came and went, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. But their oppressive practices remained the same, up to and including empires of today. So as Christians, we read this text on Christmas in defiance of the decrees of emperors, past, present, and future. We read this text in rejection of those who seek to count, to categorize, and to control in the vein of Emperor Augustus. We read this text in the hope of a child, a child who will take our days of Midian and turn them on their heads, a child who will break the oppressive bars of terrorists and of tyrants, a child who will rule with justice and righteousness from this time on and forevermore. That's kind of what I got this Christmas. That'll preach. If nothing else, you can be sure it's a Christmas Eve sermon none of your people have heard yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you so much for a uh, dip into Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And as we celebrate the coming of the child, we hope that you all have a very Merry Christmas from us here at First Reading Podcast. Uh, since you have nothing else going on this Christmas Eve, take some time on the internet and subscribe to us, etc., etc. You know, you could gather your, your family together around the crash. I like this. And just binge listen to First Reading Podcast. I think I'm going to make my kids do that this Christmas. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time around. Until then, I'm Tim McNinch. I'm Rachel Wren. It's been a pleasure studying the text with y'all this year. Merry Christmas.